Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for eyes society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Paul Goldberger, who's one of the most prominent architectural critics in America, who for years has been writing the uh, architectural review columns for the New York Times and has written many books on different topics. And uh, he has a book that's coming out in April, which uh, when I heard about it from him, I said, of course, that has to be a book written. Uh, the book is about David Walentis. Not a whole lot of people know that name, although in New York development circles, it's well known. And I'd like him to describe it. He's David Walentis is a master builder who made a tremendous gamble. And your book is entitled what? Entitled Dumbo, The Making of a Neighborhood and the Rebirth of Brooklyn. I believe it's down the other end of the the island, down under the Manhattan and Brooklyn. The name Dumbo, which has nothing to do with the elephant, is an acronym for down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. And it's the neighborhood, the old industrial neighborhood, basically between under the Brooklyn Bridge and under the Manhattan Bridge. It's a wonderful story because David Valentis is a New York developer who had done a few buildings in Soho and a few other places, never been in the really big time back in the 70s, but had done okay and had a good kind of nose for neighborhoods that were developing. And he um, one day uh, had finished a project in Soho. He was looking for the next thing to do. He saw a kid in one of his buildings in Soho and said, what's the next hot place? And the kid said, Dumbo. And Walentis had never heard of this place. And he went across the Brooklyn Bridge, had lunch at the River Cafe, and then started taking a walk and found this amazing industrial neighborhood that was almost abandoned, uh, right on the waterfront that nobody was paying attention to. It's kind of bounded by the uh, arriving overpasses of both the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge. So it makes sense. That's right. Triangle with this with the waterfront. It's kind of triangle with the waterfront, the wide end, and they how were big always, is it? How many acres? Um, that's a good question. I'm actually not sure. It's not a lot. It's just it's you know it's probably about twenty square blocks, and uh, that's a lot. It's become York. well. To he ended up buying almost all of it, and uh, it was owned by Harry Helmsley, who was using it as warehouse space mainly, and. Uh, with random bits of manufacturing, but that was all dying away in the 70s. And Walentis bought all of these buildings for a total of $12 million. Which is nothing. Which today is nothing. It was a lot in 1979. It was actually a lot for him in 1979. And he had to borrow a lot of the money, but he did do it. And of course, he's now a billionaire from that neighborhood. He gave me a tour of that place his outfit is called Two Trees, 
That's right. And the trees are located in Birchampton in front of what was then his his summer house, which was the polo field on Hayground Road. And I got to meet him at that time. And he said, let me take you around. Did you have, get a chance to see it when it was before it was actually moved? Any mo- movement was taking place on it? I did see it a couple of times, yes. And I've seen his new house. He now lives on the ocean in Southampton. Really fantastic piece of modern architecture that he commissioned. What did you uh, think about the project as a gamble? I'm sorry, the project that is? Dumbo. Oh, I, thought Dumbo, I think Dumbo was brilliant and extraordinary. And uh, I mean, David really knew what he was doing. One of the most amazing things is how much patience he had. He went through years and years of ups and downs. He had a huge fight with the Koch, Ed Koch's administration. Uh, the deputy mayor didn't like him and tried to kick him out of the neighborhood. He struggled with public officials. He struggled with the market, which was very slow. The fact that the neighborhood now is the hottest residential neighborhood in Brooklyn and one of the hottest in New York and one of the most expensive and most in demand is extraordinary when you when you think of it. Uh, although it has, of course, like Soho and like so many gentrified neighborhoods, there was an amazing rough edge to it that, of course, has been lost in prosperity. But, you know, that's true of every place. It's true of the Hamptons. You know, there are people who will be nostalgic about the loss of a farming and fishing culture here. They're right. But on the other hand, it's been replaced by something that has, you know, much, much great about it in its own right. And so it is with Dumbo. I mean, you know, living, living places change. Living places are never static. They never stay exactly the same. They can't. They all evolve and change. And the, the question is, can you manage growth in a positive way? And Walentis did that brilliantly at Dumbo because he wanted it to still feel like a real neighborhood. You know, they, they allowed a lot of things that didn't quite fit. And he had let other developers with other architects come in and do things. Everything isn't exactly his vision. It's not a, he didn't seek total control over everything. And that actually helped make it feel like a living neighborhood. But if you look down upon it from above and see it as a whole, what do you think of how he put it together in terms of parks and waterfront and... Uh... Well, I think it it all turned out pretty well. Some of that, of course, was not him. You know, eventually the waterfront was taken over by something, uh, by the state Brooklyn Bridge Park, which unified the whole waterfront between the bridges and even further south beyond the Brooklyn Bridge and is, I think, actually one of the triumphs of public space design in the last generation in New York City. You know, Walentis at one point had a different vision for that. He wanted to put a big hotel by the French architect Jean Nouvel on the waterfront just next to the Manhattan Bridge. Uh, It's just as well that that didn't happen. Uh, I think it would have been a big mistake. It would have blocked the bridge. It would have changed the nature of everything. Now you still feel that it's the older buildings that dominate the old factory buildings that have been converted into either housing or new offices and tech firms and so forth. And the feeling of the old cityscape is not completely gone. And another developer also ended up doing uh, the the greatest single landmark in the neighborhood is an old warehouse called the Empire Stores. 
And uh, Melendez never got the right to redevelop that. The state owns it and uh, they gave it to someone else. But in fact, it turned out well. And he grudgingly admits that himself. So, I mean, he knew enough to not want to control every square inch. He knew it would be a better neighborhood if it had a little more diversity in it. And that's one of the reasons I think it's real and is going to be sustainable. Talk a little bit about um, the Hamptons. How, how would you approach talking about it from a, an architectural critic? Well, you know, Dan, you can't, you can't generalize about the Hamptons because each town, each village, each hamlet has its own identity. It's one of the things I love most about it is that you know, Sag Harbor feels different from Montauk, which feels different from Sagaponic, which feels different from East Hampton, which feels different from Bridgehampton and so forth and so on. And I mean, I, I love the fact that here, only a hundred miles from the you know, density of New York City, we still have what I think are the greatest beaches in the world or among the greatest beaches in the world, incredible historic architecture, beautiful new architecture and a sense of villages and places to walk, places with that same balance that in fact we were just talking about in Dumbo of coherence and yet a few things that are different so that you do feel this is a living place and not not colonial Williamsburg. You know, nobody wants a fake place. At least I don't want a fake place. I mean, <laughs> And I, I love the fact that in Sag Harbor, for example, you know, that things have evolved and changed and that the fundamental nature of Main Street stays the same, but it accommodates different kinds of buildings of different periods. Thankfully, they were smart to put back the facade of the Sag Harbor movie theater exactly as it was, because that, that really is too iconic to lose. But when the hardware store burned down, it was rebuilt a little bit differently and that, that works well too. I think you want a mix of things to, so that each age kind of leaves its mark, but doesn't destroy what has come before, protects and cares for what's come before. Um, I think he's, I really do believe, even though this sounds like the LVIS slogan, that East Hampton is the most beautiful village in America. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's an extraordinary, extraordinary place uh, that is, but it's not just from preservation. It's also come from care of adding new things in a, in a judicious and careful way that's respectful, but that show it's a living place at the same time. And, and all that is to the good, I think. What modern architecture, I don't know, from, from about 1950 on, there was a period of maybe half a century, and even to today, where uh, modern architecture, residential architecture was one of the great attributes of the Hamptons. Yes. And, and go ahead, sorry. No, I was wondering which, what, which is something you admire or think is wonderful. Well, I admire a lot of the early modern architecture from here. And, it's upsetting that we've lost a lot of it. In that sense, you know, we we're, we have a problem in common with so many other communities around the country where a lot of interesting and, and important and good residential stuff was designed in the 50s and 60s. 
because most of that stuff was modest and small. And now people want bigger, grander, more elaborate things. And in many cases, you know, we've lost houses because people wanted to put McMansions on that land. And the, the land was more valuable than the piece of modern architecture on it. Those are, are huge losses for, for this community as they are for, for so many other communities. You, you wish that at least if somebody had a great modern house that they didn't want, they would allow somebody to move it and use it as a guest house somewhere else or use it as their own guest house or something and rather than just rip it down. Uh, we've, we've lost a number of important houses, although we've also preserved several. And I think there's more respect and interest in that architecture now than there was a few years ago. There's a wonderful house by Charles Guathme on Bluff Road next door to the very famous house he designed for his parents that he designed for another client, which was for sale a couple of years ago. Thankfully, it was bought by people who really loved it and wanted to care for it and are expanding it in a very, very respectful way. Uh, more of that we need, more stories like that in the Hamptons. I hope, I hope we have more and we don't lose any more, any more really wonderful houses. It's, it seemed to me, living through that era, as we both did, that some of the construction problems of modern architecture involving salt water and fog and that kind of thing did harm to the modern architecture. Yeah. Rather than the old-fashioned cedar shingle projects, I think I think well, cedar shingles don't last forever either. I mean, you know, those a, yeah. a shingle house has has to get recoated in shingles every fifty years or whatever as well. But it's true. I mean, remember, a lot of those modern houses that we love so much were very modest. They were about a simple, easy, relaxed weekend life, and they were built cheaply. Guathmi's own first house, the one he designed for his parents in 1965, cost $35,000 to build. Mm-hmm. You couldn't rent a house for that anymore, let alone build one. So, you know, that, that was pretty amazing. Um, so it's not surprising that 40, 50 years later, they need a little, you know, tender, loving care. And a lot of people have actually bought and restored houses like that and giving them new life, which is wonderful. But you're right now, I mean, left alone, they will, uh, they will not last forever, uh, but neither will an old shingled house, although it may, it may do a little bit better, but not, not forever without attention. Let's talk about uh, Norman Jaffe's projects. Oh, I'd love to, yeah. He was an extraordinary and wonderful architect who, uh, of course, almost now uh, 30 years ago in the early 90s, died tragically, uh, drowned in the beach in Bridgehampton. It's especially sad for me because he was identified with the Hamptons before many other modern architects were. He really based his career here and built his career here. And even though now, we have many famous architects from around the world coming to the Hamptons to accept commissions and build houses. Jaffe was kind of the other way around. At the time of his death, he was just beginning to do work elsewhere because he was beginning to get national attention, partly through what I think is one of the great 
pieces of modern architecture in the Hamptons and, and one of the greatest uh, religious buildings of modern times, which is the really beautiful synagogue that he did, uh, Gates of the Grove on um, Woods Lane at the entrance to East Hampton. And, uh, but he also did an office building in New on Fifth Avenue in New York City, a very unusual commission for him. It was done not long before he died and it was fabulous. It was really beautiful steel and glass building, very elegant, much, much nicer than most of the other ones around it. And it suggested that Jaffe was going in really interesting directions in his head and had so much more wonderful work ahead of him. And then tragically, he died. Yep. There was a project that I think was doomed to failure, but which had some success by, um, his name was Brown. He was the guy who developed Wilshire Boulevard out in ah. Mulholland Drive out in the- LA? Yes. And he developed a project in, in uh, Wainscot uh, out by the airport where he invited different architects from around the world to build private homes. Oh, yes, Coco Brown. Yep, that Coco was- Coco Brown, right, uh, yes who was actually a friend of Warner Leroy, another great Hamptons character. Uh, I think they grew up together in Los Angeles, actually. And uh, yes, he was building that. It was, it was interesting. It was a, I wrote a piece about it for The New Yorker when I was there many years ago. He bought a subdivision that had not yet been fully developed in Sagaponic near the airport and decided he would make it a center of modern architecture and would commission a different young architect to do each house. Yep. And it was a very, it was called the houses at Sagaponic. It was a very ambitious idea. The sad thing is that there were two things that I think made it not ultimately work very well. One is that the land wasn't great and it was too close to the airport and people willing to spend money on a really special house probably wanted a better location. The other was that in a, I think, probably misguided uh, thought that this would bring efficiency to the whole process, he decided to leave the existing subdivision plan in place rather than go to the town and try to change it. And it was a very ordinary suburban thing with, you know, cul-de-sacs and plots of land that were just, you know, an acre or whatever, half an acre, boom, 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 boom. And you could have probably done something a little more in innovative in how you laid out the houses and organized them. And by, you, by just changing the design of the houses themselves, but leaving the layout the same of the little community or neighborhood he was building, I think he probably made a mistake in the long run because he made it less attractive. But it was still a wonderful project and several really fabulous houses were built there. Yep. And then he died and somebody else, I think, took it over. But I'm not sure how whether they managed to go very far or do much else with it. I don't think that there's too much more yeah. development in there. Right, there's right. A lot of other no, but it's a wonderful, it's a great Hampton story. And part of the, and one of the more interesting ones, especially, you know, everything he did there was a lot nicer than some of the gargantuan McMansions that have dotted the landscape everywhere in the last 20 years.
Do you have a particular favorite house in the Hamptons that you, when you go by, it just makes you smile and you think this is just gorgeous? Well, there's a lot of them, actually. Yeah, many. I mean, first, so many of the old shingled houses, including what's really kind of almost like the definitive great original shingled house, which is the um, Schuyler Quackenbush house at Lee Avenue, right where Ocean Avenue turns and Lee Avenue comes off it in the village of East Hampton. It's a huge old house and one of the very few that is not entirely blocked by privet or hedges or evergreens until you can actually see it, which is probably one reason it's been so influential and has been copied with by, you know, a thousand terrible McMansions. But we can't blame that house for that any more than I would blame Mies van der Rohe, uh, who designed the Seagram building and the most elegant glass boxes for all the crappy glass boxes up and down Third mm -hmm. Avenue. You know, if, if people knock it off badly, it's not the fault of the original. So that's one house that always gives me a smile. But many modern houses do too. I mean, the, uh, the early Guathme houses do. My, my own house, I'll say, I actually really love and I always feel good to come, come back to. I think some of the recent work by Stelle Lamont, uh, Bridgehampton Architects has been wonderful. Bates Massey does wonderful modern work that I love. And whenever I see one of their houses, I'm, I'm made happy. There's a lot. I mean, it, it's sort of like asking a music critic what their favorite piece of music is. I mean, you know, what about, what about the, uh, the classic Hamptons house on the ocean at Georgia? It, was, it used to be owned by Kennedy, the Michael Kennedy. Oh, Michael Kennedy house. Yeah, yeah. It's the one, um, actually, it's just sort of in Wainscot around the Georgica Association. Yeah, you see it in yeah. the movies. You yes, see yeah. That's an extraordinary house uh, and, and beautiful in it. In it. It's, it's, it's the epitome of a kind of plain, understated elegance and beauty that, that is unpretentious, but you know, perfectly located right there on the, on the water at a time when, when actually very few houses were built right on the dunes. It was unusual for its time. Yep. Usually they built farther back. And so that, but it is a very special house and a house that, that is all about the climate, the outdoors, the connection between the indoors and outdoors. Yeah. And it's a house that enhances its place. That's, you know, that's the great test really. Does, does the house make the place feel more itself, more, more what its nature is? And I think that one does, absolutely, yeah. Have you thought about a new book after this particular one on? After Dumbo? Well, actually I have a, um, I am working on a book about another Great Hamptons house, a new one. Uh, it's going to be a book about a single house in East Hampton designed by Diller Scafidio and Renfro, uh, New York architects. It's a very, very, very unusual modern house that was built by a very ambitious client who wanted to kind of bring back a sense of the avant-garde to the Hamptons, to Hamptons architecture. And it's at the end of Two Mile Hollow Road in East Hampton. And the owners actually are interested in, in having an entire book just about the history of the house and how it came together. So I'm, I'm working on that. I don't know whether there'll be another Hamptons book. I've also for years thought about updating a book I did many, many years ago called Houses of the Hamptons, 
which was an assemblage of modern architecture in the Hamptons that was done in 1985. So a lot of 36 years ago. And uh, at this point, uh, the houses that were presented as new in that book are all old. A couple of them are even torn down already, believe it or not. And there's, you know, two generations of new houses since then. So I should probably do volume two of that book someday because, I mean, I must say, I, 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 I've spent more time because of the pandemic, more time here in the last year than I have at any year of the 35 years since I've owned a house here. And I've loved it. And it just makes me want to spend more and more time here. So uh, a lot of other people have. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. Not, not, I'm, I'm not unique in that at all. No, where are you? Where were you from originally? You um, to get into well, that. I actually grew up in the suburbs outside of New York City in New Jersey. I mean, I've been a New Yorker most of my life and lived both in New York City and here most of my life. But I grew up in suburban New Jersey, in Nutley, New Jersey, well known as the hometown of Martha Stewart. And uh, I spent my summers at the Jersey Shore. And I think one of the reasons I so loved the Hamptons when I first came here was that growing up spending summers on Long Beach Island in New Jersey, I had no idea that it was possible to have an ocean, a beach, and trees at the same time. Right. Because, because that was just a flat sandbar. It kind of looked like Napig here. But the, the, that, and that was all I knew. And I thought all beach places looked like that. And then I came here and I found a place that looked like the country, but it was also the beach. And I've never in all these years gotten over the joy of having the country and the beach and the ocean at the same time in the same place. But I did indeed grow up in New Jersey originally. I have a great fondness that doesn't fit any other part of me because I'm such an urbanite in general, but I love cars. And I've always thought that must be the one little piece of New Jersey that I took with me <laughs> uh, when, everything, when everything else became New York. Route 22, does that mean yeah, Right, right. I, I grew up around, along Route 3, but yes, Route 22, Route 46, Route 17, all those places, yes. Yes. Do you think there's a next for the Hamptons? Or do you think we've arrived at a particular part of change that's going to stay here for a long, long time? Well, that's a really, really good question. Um, and, and the only honest answer is I truly don't know. I mean, we have huge challenges here, which we're trying to meet. We're not denying them or ignoring them. And fundamentally, they are that the more we protect and care for this place, the more we prevent it from becoming overdeveloped, the more it also therefore becomes expensive and less diverse and more difficult for people who grew up here and came from here to afford to continue to live here. It's a problem we have in common with many other places in this country. It's not unique to the Hamptons, but it's particularly strong here. And, uh, uh, you know, that, that's one problem. The other is that we not allow prosperity to make us too precious and too cute and too perfect. Uh, that we keep the, that, the fresh air of reality 
kind of those winds blowing through the place uh, and manage it. So uh, it is hard, it is difficult. I hope it doesn't dramatically change, but I realize that there's some level of hypocrisy to saying that real places inevitably need to change or they're just museums, as I said earlier in our conversation about Dumbo, and saying that I don't, I would hope the Hamptons change as little as possible. So, you know, I mean, I, I will, if you want to call me on a contradiction there, you're, I'm completely guilty. I plead guilty. There's no question that, yes, that's the case. I hope we can manage change successfully so that we don't lose the things that are most beloved and most important about this place. Well, there are two, in closing, there are two things that happened here that are dramatic uh, in keeping that in, in place and going forward. And one is the uh, purchase of farmland or it was originally put in place to relieve taxes on the farmers and you could sell development rights. And the second, of course, is the uh, real estate tax on transfers, which has brought in more than a billion dollars to preserve open space uh, throughout the communities. And I think without those two things, which go hand in hand, we would be finished. I agree. We, we were, uh, you know, many years ago in 1983, I wrote a piece that was a cover story in the New York Times Magazine that was called The Strangling of a Resort that was about what, about overbuilding in the Hamptons and all the damage it was, that was being done. And I cited Nantucket where they actually invented that land tax <laughs> or land bank. Yeah, you can't even put your house in Nantucket without their approval. Right, right, right. They, they actually carry it a little too far if you ask me, but they were totally right about the land bank idea and they've preserved huge amounts of open space to the benefit of everyone. And, you know, thankfully, we have picked up on those ideas. We were a little late. I would say we locked the barn door after one of the cows got out, but not the rest of them. <laughs> and so, you know, we are, we are, that probably has been the single most important development in, you know, the, in, in the last uh, generation, really. And without it, I think we would be a very different place and a much less pleasing place to be. Uh, two last things I wanted to mention and ask your opinion about. I guess about six or seven years ago, uh, the town of East Hampton put forward a plan to clear the brush away from dead end roads so you could see the water. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it didn't fly, but I wondered if you knew about that and. What they, were, what they were basically saying was, let's get a look at the ocean in more places, not just the ocean, but these places that have gorgeous views. And uh, the landscaping that was brought in here by professionals from 1960, 1970 on, have created jungles of foliage that's gorgeous, but have made this, the long views that we used to have uh, other than in the preserved properties, almost almost uh, in, invisible. Right. I would. I did not know about that actually, but I would. My instinct would be to say that is a good idea, and I'm sorry that it didn't fly because you know th there's a difference between public views and private views. Right. And uh, being able to preserve public views of the water 
from public roads is a wonderful thing. Why would you not want that actually? Well, the neighbors said it was a privacy issue. They felt that doing that would expose them. Hmm. Well, well, everybody's obsessed with privacy now. You know, I remember when I first came to East Hampton many years ago, you could go around Georgica and see most of the houses, at least in the winter. Now, of course, everybody's got them completely surrounded by foliage all year round. And in fact, Southampton has been doing that for a long time. I used to think of East Hampton as more democratic and being more open. And, but people are so obsessed with privacy now. Uh, you know, people used to have their names rather than just a street number on their little signs. And now you almost never see that anymore. Yeah. Uh, everything is about privacy and anonymity. I guess, look, the world is a little bit different and there's certainly a lot more money at stake than there used to be. But it's still sad. I mean, it makes it feel a little bit less like a community. And, and, I, I, and the more I think about this issue of public views, what you're doing is prioritizing private, the private over the public when you don't allow those views from the road of, natural, of, of water and natural landscape. And our community is about the common wheel, about what we share in common. It's not just a bunch of rich people hiding behind hedges. And so yeah, it's about common space. Or if we, I hope could, it should... we, we can go on with this for a long yes. time. Yes, we could. <laughs> well, I'm we, glad we agree. We have to bring it to a close. Okay. And thank you for coming. Uh, this is Paul Goldberger, the uh, architectural critic for the New York Times and a longtime resident of East Hampton. Thanks for coming on my podcast. Thank you, Dan. 